following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, this morning we are continuing our series of studies on the doctrines of grace, where we are considering from the biblical text how our triune God works in perfect harmony to accomplish his one eternal purpose in Christ to save sinners for the eternal praise of his glorious grace. If you have not been able to listen to last week's message, I would encourage you um, to leave this place and go, no, I'm just kidding, to listen to it (laughs) after today so that you can get caught up of what we're talking about, why it matters, why it's important, Last week was a foundational message as we open up to consider the doctrine of limited atonement or definite atonement or particular redemption. We began to look at the letter L in the acrostic tulip, which stands for limited atonement. Of course, when you put the tulip together, you have total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance or preservation of the saints. But as we consider the doctrine of limited atonement or particular redemption, it's the biblical teaching that our Lord Jesus Christ took on flesh and walked this earth for the purpose of executing his father's plan to save and redeem and reconcile by his substitutionary death, not the entire human race, but all those who were chosen by the Father and given to the Son to be his bride, to be his flock, to be his church, to be a people for his own possession. Limited atonement insists that Christ died for those the Father gave him. Well, unfortunately, the phrase limited atonement carries with it a negative connotation, doesn't it? After all, the word limited is defined as restricted in size, amount, or extent, few, small, or short. And so when people hear the phrase limited atonement, it tends to raise some red flags. The atonement? Limited? The redeeming work of God the Son? Limited? Restricted? The cross work of the Son of God? Restricted? Small? You know, we don't like the word limited today, and perhaps it's because we live in the age of the infomercial. Someone gets on the screen and, you know, he's trying to sell you something, and at some point in the, the commercial he says, but now for a limited time only, and you realize the window to get this amazing product is really small. And as the program continues for another 45 minutes, he says, but now if you order right now, you can get two for the, and it's a limited time, right? Limited tends to carry with it a negative connotation. That's why a term that better captures the heart of the matter is definite atonement or particular redemption. The phrase limited atonement refers to the fact that the Savior's atoning work on the cross is limited, not in its power, not in its glory, not in its saving efficacy, but it's limited in its extent. That is, it's limited to all those and only those whom the Father gave to the Son, the ones the Bible refers to as God's elect or God's chosen ones, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. Particular redemption refers to the fact that Christ, by his death, actually redeemed a particular number of people. It insists that the divine design for the cross work of Christ was not to make salvation a mere possibility for all people without exception, 
but rather it was to make salvation a glorious actuality for those whom the Father graciously chose and to save before the ages began. We are not talking about atonement, an atonement that merely makes salvation possible. We are talking about a, an atonement that makes salvation an actuality for those for whom it was intended. We don't go into this world offering possibilities. We go into this world saying there is a perfect atonement, a glorious propitiation. And if you turn to the Son, you will find in him a perfect high priest and mediator to bring you to God. It's a definite atonement in that it was designed by God to save a definite number of sinners from both the corruption and the consequences of sin. And in talking with people today and in listening to Christian radio and Christian television or following Christian social media, it's obvious that this is not the predominant view of the church today. It's especially not popular in a culture that more than ever claims to be all-inclusive. We live in a culture that claims it doesn't want to offend or exclude anybody or make anyone feel left out as long as everyone agrees with the prevailing popular views of the culture, of course. To add to this, sin has so poisoned the minds of so many people today that we are surrounded by a culture that has been infected with the deadly disease of entitlement. The belief that we are inherently deserving of privileges and special treatment. We live in an entitlement age. And the war that every Christian generation has had to fight since the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is the war against the world and the lowercase g God of this world who wants nothing more than to destroy the church of Jesus Christ by getting her to either depart from the truth altogether or to get her to compromise a little bit so that she gives up a little of what she has to offer the world and in turn takes a little of what the devil has to offer the church. And sadly, church history, even up until the present day, has been marred and scarred by times when the church lowers her defenses and adopts the predominant views of the culture and almost becomes identical with the world and what it believes and how it behaves and how it looks. And if we're honest, if we look around today, do we not see this happening all around us? Obviously, we don't have time to identify all the ways in which the church has been influenced by the ideologies of the culture. But I will say that it's clear to me, at least, that the world's sense of entitlement has, in one way or another, seeped into the sanctuary of the church and into the minds of many who confess to be Christians. While accepting, you know, some form of the doctrine of sin as lip service, when you talk to many Christians today, you come to discover that they don't actually believe everything that the Bible has to say regarding the pervasive sinfulness of sin and how it has corrupted us and debilitated us. You come to find out that what they actually believe is that we're not that bad. I mean, we're bad, but we're not that bad. No, the Bible says we are that bad. We are that bad. And, and what this eventually does is it warps a person's views of God's justice and what they actually deserve and don't deserve. You see, when you tell yourself that you're bad but not that bad, you begin to think about God's justice differently. And in the end, you get some form of confession that affirms that either, number one, every sinner on earth deserves at least a chance to be saved, or number two, that God owes it to every sinner on earth to at least give them a chance to be saved. Well, then comes in the doctrine of the word of God, which states that God in his inscrutable wisdom has not chosen to save all of Adam's fallen descendants from the power of sin and death. Into a world of entitlement, 
God's word comes and says, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he has compassion on whom he has compassion. The scriptures bring us face to face with a God who, when it comes to salvation, says, I will mercy whom I mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. We're confronted with a God who takes clay from the same lump of fallen humanity and on the one hand shapes and fashions vessels of mercy into which he will pour the riches of his mercy for all eternity. These vessels will be saved by his sovereign mercy. And on the other hand, this glorious, just, holy potter takes what's left of that same lump of sin-loving clay, God-hating clay, the clay of humanity, and he makes vessels of dishonor. Romans 9.22 calls them vessels of wrath that will display the holiness of God's wrath and his power against sin and against all rebellion in his kingdom. And in the end, he wrongs absolutely no one. No one. Vessels of wrath have done everything to deserve his righteous wrath. And on the other hand, vessels of mercy have done nothing to deserve his mercy. And so his power and wrath are put on display and the riches of his glory and grace are put on display in the vessels of mercy. Vessels of mercy have done nothing to deserve his mercy and yet they will sing forever of his mercy. Well, obviously, the biblical doctrine of unconditional election isn't popular in a culture of entitlement where we're just bad, but not that bad. Well, then comes in another doctrine, as if that isn't offensive enough to sinful, entitled man. Then comes in the doctrine of particular redemption, which states that Flowing from God the Father's gracious act of election of sinners, particular sinners, to life and salvation, God the Son comes down from heaven, not to die in the place of everyone without exception so as to make salvation possible for all and anyone who would choose to accept it or reject it, but to die in the place of all those and only those whom the Father chose and gave to him as his possession. Three times in John chapter 10, Jesus says that he, as the good shepherd, came to lay down his life for the sheep. And someone might say, well, Jesus is just, he's just calling attention to his unique relationship to his sheep in this chapter. It doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't come to lay down his life for all people without exception. And that's true. But then in this same context, John chapter 10, he looks the religious leaders in the face and says to them, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Notice that he does not say, I came to lay down my life for my sheep. And if you believe in me, then you can become one of my sheep. No, that's not what our Lord teaches us here. The flow of John chapter 10 is as follows. Number one, I'm going to give you three points here, or four. Number one, he came to lay down his life for the sheep. John 10 verse 15. Number two, not all people are his sheep. John 10, 26. Number three, believing in Christ does not make someone a sheep. John 10, 26. But rather, being a sheep is what guarantees that a person will believe in Christ and hear his voice and follow him, John 10, 27. So if there's nothing, humanly speaking, that we can do to make ourselves sheep, where do these sheep come from? Well, here's number four. The sheep are given by the Father to the Son, John 10, 29. So in other words... The origin of the sheep is bound up in the father's love for the son. The son comes for them to lay down his life for them. And as Jesus teaches us in his dialogue with the Pharisees, not all are his sheep. Because not all have been chosen and given to him by his father. 
Well, as we study the doctrine of particular redemption, we quickly discover that this doctrine is revealed not just in a handful of controversial texts that at the end of the day can tip towards a universal atonement or a limited atonement. That's not where we're getting this from. Do you understand what we're saying? The doctrine of a definite atonement isn't dependent upon a handful of hotly debated verses that really, at the end of the day, can tip one way or another. That's not the case. It's revealed in really the wide range of biblical revelation as it relates to God's plan of salvation. So often, we only, when we're talking about the extent of the atonement, we only deal with the passages dealing with for whom Christ died, and we negate why he died, what his death actually accomplished, and what God's design behind the atonement actually was. Because we can conclude that if God purposed the atonement to serve one purpose, that purpose will be accomplished. Isaiah 46.10, God says, I accomplish all my purposes. So we need to figure out what the purpose of God is in the crosswork of Christ. Because whatever he accomplished, whatever he did, he did without fail. He did without failure. He did it perfectly as the God who does all things well. As we press on in our study of particular redemption or definite atonement, we're going to see how Passages dealing with the extent of Christ's death, both the many passages on this side and the all and world passages on this side, need to be considered within the larger framework of what Scripture teaches about the design for the atonement. That is, what God intended for the atonement to accomplish. We need to be considering these verses in line of the larger framework of the passages dealing with the nature of the atonement. That is, what Christ actually accomplished by his death. And we need to consider these passages in light of the larger framework of the passages dealing with the perfect unity of all three persons of the Trinity in accomplishing the great work of salvation. And that's what we're going to do this morning. You might be asking, what does the doctrine of the Trinity have to do with the doctrine of particular redemption or limited atonement? or definite atonement? What does the doctrine of the Trinity have to do with the question, for whom did Christ actually die? Well, as I hope to show you today, it has everything to do with it. It has everything to do with it. We hold fast and passionately defend a particular redemption that actually saves those for whom it was intended as opposed to a universal redemption that merely makes salvation possible for everyone. Why? Because we hold dear to what the scriptures teach regarding the Trinity and how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit work in perfect harmony to accomplish one eternal purpose. Before we delve into passages dealing with the extent of the atonement, those for whom Christ died, we need to examine what the Bible teaches regarding not only the nature and the design of the atonement, but the author and designer of the atonement. And who is that? That's our triune God. Our triune God. And what I hope to show you this morning is that the unity and harmony of the Trinity requires a particular redemption. The Bible teaches that there is one God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his power, in his perfection, in his goodness, in his glory, in his wisdom, justice, and truth. One God. Deuteronomy 4.39 says, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. There is one God. Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh, is one. There is one God. And yet, in glorious mystery, at the same time, the scriptures teach us that this one God exists eternally as three glorious persons. 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is infinite and eternal and unchangeable. The Son is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And the Holy Spirit is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. The Father is God. The Son is God. And the Holy Spirit is fully God. Yet there are not three gods. There is one God. There is one God who subsists in three persons. And these persons are distinct from one another. Meaning that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. We're talking about three distinct persons and yet one God. I'm going to give you three words here that are very important in thinking about the Trinity. Co-equal, co-eternal, and consubstantial. These three persons are co-equal. That is, they are the same in glory, the same in power, the same in authority. Secondly, they are co-eternal, which means that God has always existed in three persons. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Spirit is eternal. And lastly, they are consubstantial, which means they are of the same substance. Con, you know, it's, 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 it's a word that joins together, it means with, together. They share the same nature. The persons of the Trinity are consubstantial. They share the same substance, the same nature, the same essence, the same being. They all share the divine nature that we call Godhood. All three persons are fully and truly God. This is the God revealed in the pages of the Bible. Three distinct persons, but never divided. It's not like, you know, the Father makes up some part of God, and then the Son makes up another part, and then when you get the Holy Spirit, then it, God is complete. That's not how it is. They are the same essence, the same substance, Godhood. Their essence is indivisible, cannot be divided. And one of the implications of the indivisibility of God's essence is the indivisibility of his works. One of the implications of God's indivisibility of his essence or his being is the indivisibility of his works. In other words, if your mind is blank right now, just as you cannot divide God's essence, you cannot divide his works. You cannot divide his works. And so, for example, while the Bible attributes the work of creation to the Father, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, it doesn't mean that the Son was not involved in creation. We're told in John chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made through him. Jesus, the Word, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Nor does it mean, when the Bible attributes the work of creation to the Father, that the Spirit was uninvolved in creation. We are told in the very first chapter of Genesis that the Spirit is there, hovering over the face of the waters. And Psalm 33, verse 6 goes on to tell us that by the Word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath, or Spirit, of his mouth, all their host. So the Spirit is involved in creation. And yet there aren't three creations, like, oh, that's what the Father created. Oh, you see that over there? That's what the Son created. Oh, and that over there, that's what the Spirit created. It's not three creations. There's one creation, one God at work, and yet each person contributing to creation in a different way. But one work. All three persons of the Trinity are involved in what God does. Even though the Bible can attribute certain actions or works to one of the persons of the Trinity. And so we have God undivided in his essence and also undivided in his works. Even though the persons of the Trinity perform different or distinct functions... From one another. 
The doctrine of inseparable operations teaches us that our one triune God works in harmony because their undivided actions are grounded in what? Their undivided essence. However, the doctrine of appropriations teaches us that certain works, even though all three persons of the Trinity are involved in all that God does, certain works are attributed to certain persons of the Trinity. For another example, when it comes to the incarnation, who actually took on flesh? Was it the Holy Spirit? No. Was it the Father? No, it was God the Son. It was God the Son who alone took on flesh. He was made in the likeness of men. The Father did not do that. The, the Spirit did not do that. It was the Word, John tells us, who became flesh. Nevertheless, the Father and the Spirit were both involved in the Son's incarnation, were they not? John, 1 John 4.14, it was the Father who sent the Son. So he was involved. How about the Holy Spirit? Was he involved in the incarnation? Luke 1.35 says the Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary to bring about that conception of the Christ child. Same work, one work, distinct roles, distinct functions, distinct operations, if you would. So while it was the Son who took on flesh in the work of the incarnation, the Spirit and the Father were also involved. And so although the persons of the Trinity work distinctly from one another, they nevertheless work in perfect harmony with one another. It's almost like an orchestra. I hate, I hate projecting illustrations because we're dealing with infinite realities, eternal realities, glorious realities. But it's almost like an orchestra. You have many musicians. You have distinct notes coming from different instruments, but all in harmony with one another playing one song. Well, the same is true regarding the work of redemption. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. One God in three persons working in unity and in harmony to accomplish the work of redemption. I want to turn to three texts. The first text I want you to turn to is Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. The pastoral epistle of Titus. I want you to see the harmony of the Trinity at work in accomplishing our salvation. Again, the whole thesis this morning is that the unity and harmony of the Trinity requires, demands a particular redemption. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Paul says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in envy and malice, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of, here's the first person, God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so we see the goodness and loving kindness of God the Father making salvation a reality for us. We see the Spirit of God renewing us, washing us with the new birth, regeneration? And does the Spirit just work isolated by himself? Or is his work connected to something? What's well, connected to the work of the Lord Jesus? Look at this again. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he, the Father, poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we see one work of salvation being accomplished by our triune God. The Father bringing his grace, 
The son, well, we're justified by his work on the cross. And as a result, the Spirit of God applies that accomplished work by the renewal and the regenerating work of God. Makes these things a reality, in other words, by regeneration. The next passage I want you to see is Galatians chapter 4. So turn to, turn to the left. Galatians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. So already we have God the Father sending God the Son. Born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. God the Father sends God the Son to adopt us. To redeem us. And notice the final verse. And because you were sons, in other words, because you've been justified and adopted into God's family, what's the next thing? God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So within the span of just a few verses, we have the Trinity working in harmony to accomplish our salvation, our adoption into the family of God. The next passage I want you to see is Ephesians chapter 1. I saved this for last. At least this point. We're not at the end of the sermon yet. You know, you know me. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3, this great outburst of triune praise. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we are dealing with God the Father. What has he done? Well, let's move on. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Next action. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. For what purpose? That we should be holy and blameless before him. So already we see God the Father at work, blessing us, choosing us, but not in a way that's connect, disconnected from the Son of God. He chose us in him. Now, I want you to put your finger there and quickly go over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And... Down in verse 25, I want you to notice Paul's words to husbands here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now listen to the purpose clause here, because it's the same purpose for which the Father chose us, back in Ephesians chapter 1. So this is Paul's way of telling us that the son had the exact same aim as his father. He didn't come as a rogue agent doing his own thing. He came to do the exact same thing that his father wanted. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Why did the son give himself for the church to make her holy and without blemish? Go back to Ephesians chapter one. Why did the father choose us that we should be holy and blameless before his presence? The father and the son share the same exact saving intention as one another. Well, moving on in Ephesians chapter one, notice at the end of verse four, it says, in love, the father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And so we're confronted in Ephesians 1 with the work of the Father. We call him the first person of the Trinity. And, 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 and what does he begin to do? What is it, what's the first thing he does in salvation? He chooses us. He blesses us in Christ. Not isolated from Christ, but in Christ. 
Now, how does he bring this to a reality? How does he bring this to a head? Well, he has to send the son. If his purpose is to sanctify his people, he's not just going to zap them and sanctify them and make them holy. It's going to happen through the son of God. And that brings us to verse 7. In him, we have redemption. In the son, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Trinity working in harmony, in sync with one another. We say, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Where does he fit into all of this? Skip down to verse 13. In him, speaking of Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And so we see in this monumental, massive, Everest of a passage, we see the Father at work, the Son at work, and the Spirit at work. Not three separate works, but one work, distinct work, distinct functions, I should say, but one goal. We see the Trinity working in harmony with one another. They're not on different pages. You know, the Father willing something, the Son coming as a rogue agent doing something else, and then the Spirit looking at the Father and the Son saying, I'm just going to go and try to save all of them. No, one God with an eternal purpose to accomplish in the three persons of the Trinity. Inseparable operations. One God, three persons, undivided in their essence and undivided in their works. We also see the doctrine of appropriations. The Father does the choosing. The Son does the redeeming. The Spirit does the applying of the Son's work to God's elect and sealing them for the day of redemption. The doctrine of appropriations. The Son came as the result of a predetermined plan and in accordance with the Father's election. Friends, I want you to know these things. I want you to know how the Son came. Because mainstream Christianity, it seems, when you talk to people and hear the way the Gospels you know, presented, it's just that God loved everybody and wanted to bridge the gap between earth and heaven. And so he sent Jesus to, just to provide salvation for anyone who would just lay hold of it. No, Jesus did not just come willy-nilly. He came in accordance with an eternal plan, an agreed-upon plan in the council of the Trinity. And I want you to see this, that Jesus' death was the result of an eternal triune plan He came operating with a plan in his mind. I want you to turn to a few passages. Go over to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Friends, I want you to understand the difference between God merely providing salvation through Christ and God actually accomplishing salvation in Christ. There's a difference. Jesus came with a plan in his mind. Ephesians 3, verse 8. To me, Paul says, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Notice this part. This, this was according to the eternal purpose that he, the Father, realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So right there, we are confronted with God had an eternal purpose. The Father had an eternal purpose. And he realized it, he brought it to reality through Christ, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So Christ came as a result of this eternal purpose that the Father had. That's why the night before his crucifixion, Jesus, after considering the betrayal of Judas, He said to his disciples, but behold, Luke 22, 21, a key passage. 
The hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. But, he says, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. You see, he went to the cross because it was determined before time that he would go to the cross. He was working as one to execute a plan, a predetermined eternal plan. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, God the Father saved us and he called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. So again, what's the first thing? You have the eternal purpose of God, his grace, bringing about salvation, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. What I want you to see, the reason I'm pointing these passages out is to show you that Christ came in accordance with an eternal plan and purpose. He didn't just come aimlessly. The Father just didn't say, go get him, do what you want. Get as many as you can. Do good, son. No, there was a plan. That's in, that's in, that, that theology is insulting to the wisdom of the triune God. Inscrutable wisdom devises this plan and as a result the son comes in accordance with this eternal purpose that's why in acts chapter 2 verse 23 that first pentecost sermon tells us that jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of god in that prayer in acts chapter 4 verse 27 for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant jesus whom you anointed father both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Whatever happened to Christ on that cross was in accordance with the Father's hand and the Father's plan that he had predestined in eternity. What was that plan? Turn to John chapter 6 seems that we keep returning to this glorious chapter because, I mean, this chapter really contains it all. It tells us the work of the Father, as we looked at a few weeks ago, an unconditional election. Well, now we're going to focus and key in on the work of the Son, the purpose of the Son. So all these passages telling us that Jesus came in accordance with the predetermined plan. And what is that plan? Well, look at John 6 and verse 37. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And here it is. Here's that purpose. Here's that plan. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What was this purpose for which the Son was sent into the world? To secure salvation for all those and only those whom the Father gave him to guarantee their salvation so that they would be raised up in the glorious resurrection on the last day. That's why he came. He didn't come to do his own will. He came to do the will of his Father. He came to do the will of his Father. And notice verse 38. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. My father doesn't want me to lose any of them. My father wants me to do a work that will secure their redemption so that none of them are lost. That's the father's will. And so that's what the son is operating off of. He's operating off the father's will. I promise we're going somewhere with this. Jesus was operating not as a rogue agent, but as an obedient son. 
with the will of his father in mind. John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My food, my sustenance, that which keeps me going is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's what drove our Savior all the way to Calvary. I must accomplish my Father's will. I must do the will of him who sent me. And here we are, friends, talking about either an unlimited atonement or a particular redemption. Was the Father's will for the Son to come and try to reconcile all people and to make salvation possible? Well, that would contradict the Father's act of election. We know that the Father didn't choose all, so why in the world would the Son come with the intent of saving all? Can't happen. The Father's will is the Son's will. We must never, ever divide the saving intentions of the Father and the saving intentions of the Son. They're operating with one saving goal. John chapter 10, if you want to go there now. John 10, verse 15. John 10, 15, Jesus says, Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my, my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And now notice this key phrase. This charge or this commandment I have received from my father. Everything he just mentioned. Laying down his life for the sheep and then rising again, it was a commandment from the Father. Son, you shall go and lay down your life for all the sheep that I have given you so that you lose none of them. John chapter 6. This commandment I've received from my Father and that's what drove our Lord Jesus. Literally from the cradle to the grave. This commandment I've received from my father. The father said, go, secure the redemption of all the sheep I have given you. Go accomplish the work. When Jesus came into the world, he said in Hebrews 10, 7, I have come to do your will, O God. And in that high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus opens up and says, Father, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And what was that work? Turn to John 17 really quick with me. What was that work? Was it to merely provide salvation for all people? Or was it to secure salvation for a specific people? That's the question we're dealing with in these studies Verse 3 says, and this is eternal life. Or let's, let's just start off in verse 1. Father, he says, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. It doesn't get any clearer than that, friends. He came to give eternal life to all whom the father gave him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. His purpose was to give eternal life to all the Father gave him. By dying for them. By rising for them and by ascending to the right hand of the Father for them. We see this glorious triune particularism here in the work of salvation. The Father choosing a people, the Son coming to die for those exact people. But what about the Spirit? 
we've seen that the Father and the Son share the same saving purpose, the same saving intention. Do we dare say that the third person of the Trinity comes now as a rogue agent to do something other than what the Father has decreed and what the Son has secured? No. One Trinity working in harmony, distinct roles, yes, but one glorious work of salvation. One glorious work of salvation. The unity and the harmony of the Trinity requires a particular redemption. As we come to a close this morning, I want you to see from the text that a universal atonement or a unlimited atonement, an atonement that was, I mean, really you have a few options, right? Christ died for all the sins of all people who ever lived. Therefore, all people will be saved. That's called universalism. We know that's not true because there will be a hell. Yes, we say that with broken hearts. There will be a hell and there will be people who are thrown there at the end of the age. And they're not just people who lived before the time of Christ, you know, Pharaoh and Goliath and men of such. There will be a son of perdition named Judas. There are many others that we've seen live and die hating Christ. Did he die for them so as to, without any repentance whatsoever, secure their resurrection on the last day in glory? No. So either he died for all the sins of all people and therefore all will be saved, or option two, he died for all the sins of all people so as to just make salvation possible for them. That's, not, that's, that's, a, that's an unlimited atonement. The reason we know that he didn't just come to make salvation possible is we're going to get into in the next few weeks or about a month or so um, is the nature of the atonement. He actually redeemed a people. He didn't just make them redeemable. He actually reconciled the people He didn't just put them in a state of reconcilable. He actually saved his people. He didn't just say, well, I'm going to die so that you can become savable. No, he died to secure salvation for his people. And that's the third option, is he died for all the sins of some people. Who are those some? They are those the Father gave him and entrusted to his care that he should lose none of them but raise them up on the last day. Friends, I despise this so-called provisionism today that makes Christ our Lord and provider. No, friends. He is our Lord and Savior who secures salvation for us. And of course, I get where this worldview comes from, this provisionism, right? Where if, if, you, if you don't believe the depravity of man as being debilitated and spiritually disabled to do any good for himself, then yeah, you can, all you need is just, if you have, you know, not that bad people, but you have just kind of bad people who can in one second flip a switch and seek God, then all you have to do is provide salvation for them because they'll do it themselves. But if you have what the scriptures teach in Romans chapter one, verses 18 to 32, glory haters, glory traitors, glory exchangers, people who love and approve evil. If you have people like in John chapter 6 who are unable because of their sin to come to Christ because of their love for sin, then you don't just need provision for them. You need to save them. You need to rescue them. You need to reconcile them. You need to pay a ransom price for them to uh, release them from the captivity to sin and Satan. And that's what he does. I came not to be served, he says, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. A ransom, a payment that would release the slave from captivity to sin and bring them into the family of God. That's what he came to do. So, what a universal atonement means is two things. 
if we are going to say that Christ died for all people without exception, it means that either number one, the Father has chosen to save everyone without exception and therefore sent the Son to pay for the sins of everyone without exception. But because not all are saved, mission failed. That's what you have with an unlimited or universal atonement. The Father chose everyone, which we know is not true based on Romans 8 and 9. So you already got problems there. Or it means that if you're going to insist that Christ died for all people without exception, number two, it means that the Father has chosen to save some and not all, which is consistent with what the Scriptures teach. Nevertheless, the Son came with a different intention and purpose from the Father. And so the Father and the Son are divided in their saving intention. So you have your options. Holding fast to a unlimited atonement that merely provides salvation for all means that, number one, you have a mission failure, the triune God failing to accomplish his saving purposes, when we know that's not the case, because Isaiah 46.10 says, I will accomplish all my purpose. Or you have a divided trinity. The Father and the Son with different purposes, which also contradicts Scripture, right? Because the Father came to do the will of the Father and nothing else. And because the Father chose some and not all, the Son came to lay his life down for some and not all. The very ones the Father chose and gave to the Son. Robert Raymond, in his new systematic theology of the Christian faith, said this. It is unthinkable to believe that Christ would say, I recognize, Father, that your election and your salvific intentions terminate upon only a portion of mankind, but because my love is more inclusive and expansive than yours, I am not satisfied to die only for those you have elected. I'm going to die for everyone. And so options are these. You have a mission failure. You have a divided trinity. Or you have what the Bible teaches. A mission accomplished with flawless perfection by the triune God working in perfect harmony for the praise of his glorious grace. I say that again. You have a mission accomplished with flawless perfection by the triune God working in perfect harmony for the praise of his glorious grace. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I want to point you to one final passage dealing with the harmony within the Trinity. I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 9. And we'll close here. Hebrews chapter 9. The writer to the Hebrews is writing to convince the people who have begun to look away from Christ, to look back to the old sacrificial system, to back to, back to the old priesthood and the ways of Moses. And the whole point of the writer to the Hebrews is to show the superiority and the supremacy of Christ in his person and in his flawless work as one sent by the Father to accomplish the redemption of his people. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Do you see the triune God working in harmony even in the moment of the Son's death? You have the Son who has been, ever since the River Jordan, empowered by the Spirit for ministry. The Spirit of the Lord coming upon him like a dove to then drive him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. To emerge from the wilderness triumphant in the power of the Holy Spirit. Empowering him to raise the dead, to work signs and wonders. All the way up until the last breath. The Son of God, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God the Father. For what purpose? 
to secure salvation for all those whom the Father foreknew and chose and predestined. You see this glorious Trinitarian harmony and in salvation, the Father foreknowing, the Father choosing, the Father predestining, the Son offering himself in the place of his elect, dying in their place, paying their ransom, propitiating the wrath of God for them, reconciling them by his death, uh, Romans chapter 5, conquering their enemies. And then we see the Spirit then regenerating those same exact people, sealing them for the day of redemption, sanctifying them through this life all the way to the end. Friends, praise God for the unity of the Trinity in accomplishing our great salvation. We see how the doctrines of grace are so interrelated and connected. Those whom the Father chooses are those whom the Son lays down his life for. And as we're going to see once we get to the I in the tulip, we see the Spirit coming and resurrecting those same individuals. Fred Sanders said, Christian salvation comes from the Trinity, happens through the Trinity, and brings us home to the Trinity. If you're here this morning and you're wondering, am I one of those whom the Father has given to the Son? Am I one of those whom the Son has died for? Let me tell you this with all seriousness. If you turned from your sins and you placed your faith in the crucified and risen Son of God, you will be welcomed, you will be ushered into God's presence on that final day, You will be clothed now with everlasting righteousness. You will be adopted into the family of God and treated as if you've never, ever, ever sinned, but have only ever done what is glorious and right in his sight, and you will be treated the way uh, the Father treats his own son. Turn to Christ, and you will find in him perfect redemption, perfect reconciliation, perfect propitiation, a perfect Savior. Let's pray.